Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 110. We are recording this on Saturday, January 23rd, 2021. It is about 5.50 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Uh, joining me uh, back from a week off are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, how was your week off? Oh, man, just a lot of R&R, you know, hit the golf course, got to sleep in. Um, it was it was a nice relief from all the work we do for this podcast. So I understand much work we do. I Yeah, I, I know. All that film watching, it was nice to just, you know, not watch anything. Now, actually, I, I spent my time watching several things that I don't want to report on for the podcast because they're too embarrassing. But, Terry, I heard you were still working with Adam Daly. Is that right? I was. I was. Uh, which means you probably didn't listen to it, Zach. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was off. It was my R&R. He heard about it. Though. He heard. He, That's good. The, there, there, Through the wires, he, he heard about it somewhere. There was a tasting last night, yes. Um, there we go. Yeah, uh, yeah. we uh, we had a, an episode. We talked about One Night in Miami. We uh, we went over our Baseball Hall of Fame ballots. And, uh, uh, yeah, kind of geeked out on baseball. That, that ended up being like an hour of the podcast, which uh, we didn't necessarily plan on, but it was amazing. And I kept on saying on it, we're going to do stuff like that on this episode because it's the stuff that Todd and Zach wouldn't want to do. So it was, it was a nice, uh, it was a nice little, uh, you know, release there of, of that, that type of stuff. So Todd, you, uh, you had the week off and, uh, you had quite an eventful, uh, weekend last weekend. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about what you were up to. Well, I was in uh, Las Vegas, which I think it was what three years ago that we got. We all were there. Something like uh, that. Seems like it was yesterday, but also seems like ten years ago. But um, it does look like it was ten years ago there because, like, it, the place is pretty empty. Like, there's like nobody on the sidewalks. There's not like a hundred people waiting across the road at all times. It it looks like a completely different city, but the restrictions and stuff are pretty crazy. Uh, I pretty much was like resigned to just bet on sports like i only played poker twice because uh, a lot of poker rooms are shut down so uh my nfl bets are not worth talking about but uh i did have some interesting college basketball stuff that i was betting on because it was obscure like um i looked at the at the at the docket and i was like okay this cal baptist tarleton state game it's way too low on the total so i went up to the window and i was betting on my nfl bets my last one was Tarleton State Cal Baptist over, I think it was like 145. And uh, and the guy laughed at me. He, and I was like, that's a winner. And he's like, well, he's like, I've never even heard of Tarleton State. And I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Cal Baptist always goes over. And he's like, I think I might actually bet that too. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, obviously went over. That, that was a great moment. Um, and then there was a time uh, after I lost a bunch of NFL bets uh, on Saturday that I don't entirely remember betting on uh, Cal State Bakersfield uh, over Hawaii. I think it was, I got plus one and a half. 
it was like a 9 p.m. tip, and I must have bet it like right before tip, because I don't remember it at all. I woke up, and the ticket was sitting on my nightstand, and I was like, I should probably check if this cash. <laughs> and, uh, well, it did. They won by like 15, and so I was like, this seems like free money. So I went on my phone, I looked at all the lines, and I, I came across Delaware State at home against Norfolk State, which I've never seen either team play, but I was like, this line doesn't make sense. Like, Delaware State hasn't won a game. Norfolk State's like seven and three or something, and I was like, "Why is this game not 15?" I looked at their at their at their uh, their schedules, and Delaware State actually had played Coppin State like really close, like two games before, and Coppin State almost beat Duke. And I was like, "Okay, even though this still on paper, this shouldn't make sense." I I'm I'm totally on Delaware State in this game. Plus, they had only lost by 11 the day before, and like when they have back to backs, the second game's always super tight, and. Uh, so yeah, I went down, and, and when I was cashing my Cal State Bakersfield ticket, I was like, okay, don't even cash it, just let it ride, I'm throwing it all on this game. And he typed in half the numbers, and it was like some game, uh, some Chiefs game uh, parlay, or, or uh, teaser or something, and he's like, oh wait, no, yeah, more numbers, and he typed in, and he's like, you want this? And I'm like, yes, Delaware State, <laughs> and he's like, all of it, and I'm like, throw it down, baby, and... I was watching it during the the Chiefs-Browns game where I was keeping track of it on the board at the Excalibur, on my phone, on the uh, CBS Sports app, and on Bovada because they were all updating at different times. And it was like in the middle of the third quarter when it actually cashed. And I'm like screaming and everyone's was silent because I think it was a timeout at the time on the game. And I was just like, well, you know what? I feel vindicated now. That was my biggest cash of the weekend. Uh... Yeah, I mean, Vegas is still a great city. It was, uh, it was. I mean, it's a beautiful place, but I mean, it is not what it was once in the past. But I mean, it it is slowly getting back there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm a degenerate gambler, especially in college hoops. I mean, but that's my best bet. So I know you guys were part of some of that. I let you guys in on on a, a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I. We were just talking before we got on that um, that I actually was giving you the updates for your uh, your North Alabama Kennesaw State uh, <laughs> bet because I was able to get the game on ESPN Plus. Yeah, that was part of a parlay that uh, ended up not going my way. I could I wanted to like get like the Gonzaga money line on that parlay just to like up the up the, uh, the payout, but, uh, I could not get that anywhere. I went to three different casinos and nobody actually had the money line available. So I was like, you know what, this is just going to be a three gamer. I think I had, uh, Loyola Chicago and, uh, and, and, uh, UCLA over Washington on that same one. But yeah, that was, uh, did you bet yeah. on Kennesaw state? No, no, That's I had North problem. Alabama because North Alabama won by like 26 or something the day before against, against them i don't know i mean like I, I go six, by they were only like a six point favorite or something like that yeah i go by i go by my rules and i and i disobey those rules at the same time i'm just an idiot sometimes but okay I mean, well but you the, the the most powerful rule rule is like the personal connection rule okay i have a student who's starting on kennesaw state who was in my class last year so you should have consulted <laughs> me on that shit okay i would have told what? you bet on kennesaw state and, and then starts on their basketball team yeah well, I don't know if he's a starter. He's a freshman. He's on He's on their team. His name is Mason Cordelbaum. I'm sure he's listening. Hey, Mason, you know, go Kennesaw. But you're forgetting the best part of the Tarleton 
bet, which is that I texted you that it was the school that Chris Kyle went to, oh, the guy yeah. from American Sniper, and which is a America, favorite movie, of which is our, a favorite movie, of our, our car, <laughs> our cab driver back in 2012. And I think when you That's when true. we realized that, we knew that that bet was going through. Like there was no way Karma was going to bite us in the ass on that one. Well, yeah, and I went with my buddy from high school, Tacoma Baptist, and like so he was yeah, all like right. on board, and he's like, "Yeah, baby, going old high school and betting on the on the Baptist team." <laughs> Yeah, that game was going over. I was actually in the line to get a drink at my poker tournament when that game actually went over, and I saw that on my phone. Yeah, that was great. I was at the Flamingo, because that was one of the only places actually having poker tournaments. Wow. that that That's amazing. I love we, that city. You guys should have been there. I was going to say, weekends in Vegas lead to endless great stories. We, we got to do another uh, podcast on location, you know, when this whole pandemic thing is over. Well, I mean, and I was sitting there, like, I had also had a par- big parlay with that that ended with San Francisco plus one and a half uh, against BYU, and, like, I was just dying over that game. It was on one little screen, and everybody else was obviously watching the Chiefs-Browns, because that spread was definitely within <laughs> within the balance, no and I'm just, like, like pissed off because, like, we, uh, we kept losing, missing threes and stuff. I don't know. I mean... It was just, yeah, it was super degenerate, and uh, I wish you guys had been there to experience that, because otherwise, I mean, I was by myself. Like, my, my buddy was not betting college hoops. <laughs> he was all over the NFL. I still think nothing quite beats my uh, my three-game parlay where I missed all three parts of my three-game parlay. Yeah, that was impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's more impressive than hitting all three, I think. <laughs> Being that wrong. Uh, well, good. I'm glad it was a good trip. Uh, I'm glad you're back in one piece and, uh, and are ready to talk about movies today. So, uh, so let's get into this. I did watch one of these in Vegas. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, so make sure that you, uh, subscribe, rate, review. We're on Apple podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on Pandora. We're on YouTube, uh, where I think earlier today, Adam had his, um, his daily notes episode uh, that was live recorded uh, with some friends going through a tournament of ultimate superhero uh, villains tournament to see who was the greatest. So that that's up on YouTube now, and uh, it'll be up on the on the podcast feed. Oh, before this goes up, probably. So uh, so you have that content there as well. Zach, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking something called Protocolo wine. I gotta be honest, it's terrible. It tastes like pine tar on the back of an L.A. school bus. And, uh, yeah, it was deep buried somewhere on my shelf, and uh, I'm not enjoying it. <clears throat> Far from transcendent. Yeah, it's like that uh, Cobb Franck. Yeah. Never never, learned, never grew to love them. <clears throat> but it's effective. It's doing what it needs to do. I guess. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? Well, uh, there's a beverage here, man. I'm drinking a white Russian. Nice. I'm actually wearing my Big Lebowski socks, too. So, you know, oh. I'm full on, you know, Coen Brothers right now. If I knew that, I would, the wear wrong my, week. I would wear my Big Lebowski t-shirt. And uh, and we would have uh, been complete there. Nice. Yeah. Well, I, I went to the, I made a trip to the brewery, Ridgewalker Brewery in uh, Forest Grove. Shout out. Check it out. It's pretty awesome. Uh, this isn't one of their beers. This is from Three Mugs Brewery in um, in Hillsboro. 
This is a white chocolate ale. So usually you have like chocolate porters or something like that, or a chocolate stout. This is an ale, so it's super light. Like it's got the blonde color to it, and it's just a hint of that chocolate flavor, but it's not necessarily super sweet either. So uh, it, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It was recommended by the uh, by the bartenders there, and I just like I'm going for it. I'm doing it. It's not too bad. Not too bad. I, I like the the interesting flavored beers. All right. Well, there we go. Got that out of the way. Now let's uh, let's talk about what we've been watching, and we are gonna go to Todd first. And uh, Todd, tell us your uh, your latest trip into the cager. Okay, so I watched the 2015 Austin Stark directed movie The Runner, and this stars Nicolas Cage uh, as a Louisiana politician following the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and he's trying to be a leader for the city, but he's also, uh, like, has this, like, uh, sex scandal that is coming out because a video is released of him, and so he's, like, trying to, to scramble to get his life in order while still trying to continue his political career. And the sporting cast is Connie Nielsen, it plays his wife, Peter Fonda is his father, Sarah Paulson and Wendell Pierce are also in there. Um, it sounds really heavy and admirable, but it's actually kind of a drag. I, I, I was hoping the movie would turn into some sort of thriller with Cage, like, saving the world, or, like, some, like, uh, so, I don't know, so, some sort of the thriller, but, I mean, it really is just, like, this, like, wannabe inspirational thing. Like, I think Promised Land is a pretty good, like, comparison, but it's, like, kind of lame. Uh, Cage actually does cry in the movie, which I can't, I was trying to remember the last time I actually saw him, like, legitimately cry in a, in a, in a scene that actually made sense. Like, it, I, I can't remember in the last, like, maybe 20 years. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> the movie is kind of boring. Like, I mean, I guess you could say it's a character study, but it's, it's more ambitious. It's like it thinks it's a true story, or it's, like, like, super inspirational in, enough to maybe, like, fake real, but it never really gets off the ground, uh, uh Cage does try his hardest to have, like, this really internalized performance, though. Uh, and it's it's cool because it's restrained, and, and uh, but, I don't know. He needed some sort of outburst at some point, I, I feel like, to make this movie actually watchable. Everyone underplays it. It's, it really is similar to that Jason Reitman movie, uh, The Front Runner, a few years ago. It, it's, it's just as bad as that. It, it's a one-star movie. I have it ranked, actually, right between the two Ghost Rider movies. So, yeah, not great, but... Uh, uh, I mean, it's a Cage movie, so it goes on the list. Isn't Peter Fonda in one of the Ghost Rider movies, too? Yeah, he plays, like, the devil, I think. I think you're right. Something. That, that sounds right. <laughs> you know, it does kind of also beg a question, which is, why haven't we had more Nicolas Cage movies set on boats? Like, I feel <laughs> like... this Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true, but I think we need more, more nautical maritime Nick Cage was he was did it was the surprise twist that he was responsible for the for the oil spill? No, unfortunately there were no real surprises. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have been an interesting twist. It would have been. It would have been. All right, Zach, what did you watch this week? So, I watched the Netflix series The Queen's Gambit, 
which oh, I've been meaning nice. to watch for a long time. I watched all seven episodes of it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It is um, a, the story of Beth Harmon, who's a fictional character, but she's she, she a little like, like Forrest Gump. She kind of uh, lives in a real um, world of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and she is a chess prodigy. She's played, I think, magnificently by Anya uh, Taylor-Joy. This is, I think, her best performance that I've ever seen. And uh, it's based on a novel by Walter Tevis, who also wrote um, *The Hustler* and *The Color of Money* and a couple other, a couple other uh, things. Um, the show is sort of her coming of age, and uh, the first episode—I even texted this to Todd—I think is the best first episode of anything I've ever seen. It was absolutely extraordinary. And and sometimes when that happens, um, the rest of it never quite lives up to it. And that sort of was the case here. The first episode was like an amazing mixture of like a beautiful mind meets like the devil's backbone or something like that like you could see this character's genius very early on and the orphanage setting is really neat and you also can kind of see early on um her her uh her drug addiction or at least sort of hints of that um in the in the show is very much about how she struggles with addiction but the later episodes kind of show her ascent to um the chat the 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 reigns of the chess uh, champions she goes to soviet union and mexico city and other places and faces off against exotic um you know different players some of whom are very colorful uh and um you know, uh, Bill Camp is the person who's her mentor. Uh, we have um, Harry Melling is uh, one of her competitors who later becomes one of her collaborators. Um, and uh, it's a really good show. I mean, if I had to give it a star rating, I would give it three and a half. I think it drags a little bit in the middle episodes. And um, her, her mother figure, who's played by... Um, who she played by that director Marielle Heller. Marielle Heller thank you um I didn't find her character as fascinating as I think the show did I could have done a little a little bit less of her but the show's really fascinating I'd highly recommend it it's an example of um how a six and a half hour miniseries actually can be really good because I think if this show had been a two-hour movie I would have wanted more exploration of the character uh so I'm really glad I I, I would highly recommend it um, the other thing I just want to do a quick plug-in for, because I, I feel like I have to, is I did watch the Ken Loach movie, Sorry We Missed You, which I think is extraordinary. It's a four-star movie set in Britain, all about um, this this family that is going through kind of economic strife as the father searches for a new job and the mother is a, uh, like a, a nurse uh, or a home health care worker, I should say. Todd gave it two and a half stars. What the hell is wrong with you, man? I think it's an amazing movie, very beautifully crafted. It will be on my top ten list at the end of the year. Screw you, Todd. Um, but yeah, both of those are worth checking out. Sorry, Miss You was pretty boring, but I, I did watch like the first four episodes of Queen's Gambit. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It is pretty great, but it's not. I don't know. I mean, if you're talking miniseries, that's that's kind of a different story than like if you're talking a first episode of an actual TV show. But uh, yeah, I, I mean the first the first episode is pretty awesome, and it really has n almost nothing to do with the rest of the show. At least from what I've seen, the next three episodes are completely vacant from that. So yeah. It, it, well, it is it is a really cool show, but I did like Mariel Heller a lot, actually. I think she's actually going to get nominated for a Golden Globe for a supporting actress. I, I thought she was way more interesting of a character than the show actually even leads on, because there, there's, I mean, th that character should have been a throwaway, but, like, I, she had these lines, and she had these, like, like these, like, snarky looks and stuff that I'm just like, something's deeper about that character, and you kind of do see that throughout her arc, but, I mean, I haven't finished her show, so... 
Yeah, you, you make a good point. I'm, I'm maybe being a little hard on her. I feel like her character is someone who's a little bit like treacherous and a little bit conniving at times. So maybe I'm reacting more to that. But I think she's really good in the role. I think all the actors are, are uniformly excellent in that show. Yeah, of course, Bill Camp, because, I mean, isn't he in everything? I feel like he's in, like, half the movies, or at least independent movies and TV shows that are that go on now. I have not caught any of that uh, that series yet, but I want to. Um, and, Todd, didn't you send me a text about uh, a chess movie that I need to watch? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's... Apparently Critical there's a thinking. Lot- yeah, apparently there's a lot of good uh, good uh, chess material out there now. They go, they they actually use a lot of the same like terms and strategy things uh, that they do in the show, which I watched the movie before. So, <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, now for me to report on my Oscar watch for this week. <clears throat> so we'll see if you can get this one. Uh, I know Todd listened to the podcast last week, and uh, and Adam was like, "All right, I'm ready to guess. I'm ready to guess." And it was like the hardest one ever to try and guess because it was like a lone costume design nominee. And there uh, were three of them. And that there year. were three of them that year. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, going back ten years again to 2011, and this had a lone visual effects nomination. Kind of a big action type movie. Um, has kind of had a rebirth over the last oh three months or so as it uh, dropped on Netflix, and a lot of people have been watching it. It's been probably about a month in the top ten most watched things on Netflix. Not Contagion. Not Contagion. That is not an action movie. <laughs> it's rel. It's relevant though. <laughs> Suddenly. So it is uh, Real Steel, the oh, uh, the okay. robot boxing movie with uh, with Hugh Jackman and uh, Evangeline Lilly, Anthony Mackie is in it, Hope Davis, uh, Dr. Bob's dad himself, James Rebhorn, makes an appearance as well. Mm. Um, it, it is directed by Sean Levy. Uh, and this is basically... Rocky for Robots is kind of a, a great way to, to describe it. You've got... Um, Kind of a down on his luck fighter, and it it's like kind of futuristic. And this uh, Hugh Jackman plays a, a former boxer who um, has kind of had some injuries, so he can't box himself anymore. So he is a robot boxer. So he can he's got you you have your little control panel, and you control the the robot and and box with it in the ring. And he's kind of horrible at it. Um, he, he's over the hill a little bit and then, uh, finds out that he's got a son and, uh, his son is played by, uh, Dakota Goyo, who actually that same year played, uh, uh, child Thor in the first Thor movie. Uh, so it was his, uh, it was, he had a couple, uh, good roles that year. Uh, and he kind of, kind of makes him reprioritize they find this uh down just scrap heap robot that they uh that they kind of bring up and make this uh this decent contender um it's got a it's got the big climactic big fight scene at the end a la rocky versus apollo creed um i i i feel i i talked about another movie uh like this last week too that this isn't a great movie but it is a highly entertaining. You know exactly where it's going the whole time, but you don't necessarily care. I'm giving it two and a half stars just because it's it's a it's a fun movie to watch, but.
but um, it doesn't it isn't necessarily great in in its quality, but it's it's definitely something that you can be entertained by. Um, Adam told me about a, a term that uh, one of his his movie buddies, Sean Chandler, uses on YouTube, and he said it, this is a Taco Bell movie, in that it's not necessarily good, but it is uh, it's digestible. And uh, that's kind of what this is, because this is a movie you could just like throw on in the background and have have on and be entertained. Turn it on, you know, it's on TV. Oh, I could watch a little bit of this, and uh, and that that that's kind of how I feel about this one. So two and a half stars. I do see that uh, there's potentially like there's little rumors that there might be a sequel now in the works because of how much um, popularity it got when it dropped on Netflix, which is kind of interesting that it's kind of had this resurgence just because it's available now. But, um, but yeah, two and a half stars, fun movie, easy to find on Netflix. Were the effects worth it? Effects weren't too bad. I mean, it's fairly realistic looking boxing scenes between robots. So, I mean, (laughs) okay. You, You got, you got that. I, I, I was looking at the category that it, it was up against a Transformers movie, but they both lost uh, to Hugo that year. But um, I was like, well, you got robots all over the place in that visual effects category. So, uh, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was. It was. It. It. It kind of had had its its rocky moments in there. Like not not like bad moments, but like moments that were like rocky. But uh, <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> yeah. So every year I, I share with my students this feature that uh, NPR did a few years ago about will your job be done by robots in the future? And so you can look up like every single job that's out there and it gives you a percent chance that that job will be automated or done by AI. And it gives athletes a 30% chance, which is crazy to me. Like that's really high. Like you're telling me there's a 30% chance that athletes will be automated in the future. And I guess the only thing I can think of is like real steel. I mean, maybe it's like predicting our future. Well, I mean, you do also have like esports. I mean, couldn't I you say, true. couldn't you say like watching Madden tournaments on TV is, or on Twitch or something like that is. Yeah, that's probably what that's probably what what they mean by that number. But I like to think of it as robots boxing. That that sounds much more entertaining. <laughs> it it actually is a fairly entertaining thing. I mean, it's it's like, yeah. Can you imagine doing fantasy sports of like uh, a whole team of robots like <laughs> trying to choose like which robots better? <laughs> like, who's making these robots? Are they all created by the same person? Like, I don't. Know. Yeah, uh, well, it's like we when... should gamble on this. <laughs> it's Daily like when you go to a baseball game. I don't know if they do this at the Mariners games, but the Royals games, they got, they always have a relay race between uh, mustard, ketchup, and mayonnaise and um, relish. And, uh, yeah, everyone goes crazy over that. Like, come on, ketchup. Come on, mustard. Yeah, they have the hydroplane yeah. races at the Mariners games. Yeah, yeah hydroplane races. Yeah. Which, which all last season was uh, was just during one of the commercial breaks on, uh, on the television broadcast. So uh, you, you, we still got the hydroplane races, even though no one was in the stands. Anyways, we're off topic now, but that was a, that was a good tangent to go down. It was yeah. good. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on from that and get into our featured review of the week. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. 
And uh, this is one of the uh, big independent films that uh, debuted originally at Sundance last January and was supposed to come out sometime mid-year last year. Uh, finally made its limited theatrical debut on Christmas. Last week it came out on VOD. And this is Promising Young Woman. Whisper something in your Good God almighty. You know, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. It was a perverted thing to say. You'd think you'd learn by that age, right? Please lay down. What are you doing? It's okay, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, I said, what are you doing? Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Cassandra? <laughs> We're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? Why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. I'm so sorry I didn't go with her. You gotta let it go. What are you gonna do? I don't know. Why do you guys have to ruin everything? We were kids. If I hear that one more time, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I was hoping you'd feel differently by now. It's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. Lately, I've been feeling like I might want to get back into it. Uh, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Tell us all about Promising Young Woman and what you thought. Uh, I didn't want to go first, but okay, I'll, I'll go do first. It. Okay, Todd will go first. Really? Okay. Tell us okay, about so your I saw Vegas this movie in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> I actually got to see this at, like, I have a membership to the Century, uh, the Cinemark Theaters, and so there was a Century Theater at the Orleans, which is off the strip by, like, two miles, and this is, like, an old-ass, like, really smoke-filled uh, casino, and but it is huge. Like, you can tell this is, like, one of the original ones, and I had to go don't, all the way across this don't thing they to get play, to... Don't they play, turn like, basketball tournaments at the Orleans? I really doubt it. I, I, like... I don't know where they would possibly put it. Okay. <laughs> but, Maybe NAIA tournaments. But I had to go up an escalator, and there was a Century Theater. It was a great big Century Theater at the top floor of this of, of this thing uh, at this uh, this theater. But uh, so yeah, Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell. It stars Carrie Mulligan, and uh, she plays this girl Cassandra, and she is a woman who works in a coffee shop. But her life is like way more complicated than like a former medical student working at a dead end job would imply. Uh, something happened in her past uh, that is kept from the audience for quite a while. So I'm not going to spoil it because, like, the twists in the movie are kind of uh, one of the main parts of the appeal. 
And so because of this, she moonlights as this like vigilante who psychologically wreaks havoc on men who are trying to have sex with blackout drunk women and or like rape them or just like genuine asshole douchebags that uh, she kind of entraps into uh, taking them home to their place. Uh, and something from her past comes up and uh, she sort of focuses her, her attention on the people who are involved in that life-changing event. Emerald Fennell is one of the writers and one of the producers on Killing Eve, and this is her feature film debut. Uh, the supporting cast is kind of distractingly amazing. Uh, it's, it shows, like, these really nice guy actors uh, in, like, a really horrible light. Like, you got Adam Brody, you have Max Greenfield, you have Christopher Plus, you have uh, Piz from Veronica Mars, you have Bo Burnham as a potential love interest, Alfred Molina's, like, a lawyer... Uh, Jennifer Coolidge and Clancy Brown are her parents. Connie Britton's in there. Laverne Cox, Molly Shannon, Allison Brie. Is it? I mean, it's just an incredible cast of actors who all have like maybe one scene, and the movie is like it's something else. It is pretty wild. My, my immediate comparison was is Thirteen Reasons Why meets Hard Candy, but it's played as like a dark, dark comedy, uh, in a way that it's, it's something like it's less romanticized than American Psycho, but it's also less flashy than, like, Birds of Prey. It's somewhere in between those all, but as a comedy. And it could have just been filled with, like, violence and nudity, but instead it's, like, it's got this really hip soundtrack and cinematography and, like, wardrobe, but it's really disturbing to watch because, like, scenes that would normally be, like, fun are sort of lingered upon and make you really uncomfortable and make you want to look away, which is an interesting like, touch to, to put on this, and we're, we're kept in the dark for a long time of what Cassandra is actually doing, and I think that that is because Carrie Mulligan is so amazing in her performance, like, she is, like, cold, and she's, like, so innocent looking, but, and we don't know that what she's actually doing when she's breaking down these guys that look and sound like they're really nice, but she knows that they're not, but I, I feel like because, um, yeah, because of that, I don't know that she's really going to get nominated for Best Actress because I, I, I don't I don't think she really has that Oscar scene. Uh, like uh, her for performance is really fleshed out, but uh, I don't think I mean I I don't think that she ever really has that moment where it's like okay this is this is something we're going to nominate. I but I never pers uh, expected that from her. I never saw anything that was going to imply that she was going to be able to do that. Uh, but Burnham's really cool as the male lead. Like, I, I think he's moving up at the ranks as, like, one of the cooler guys in Hollywood. Like, uh, this and his, like, uh, feature film uh, directorial debut in uh, with 8th grade. The movie's really hard to put a label on. I, I feel like it's really just going to be an original screenplay nomination type. Just because, like, I, I don't know that the, the Oscar voters are really going to know what to do with it. They're not going to really want to necessarily understand what the, what the message of the movie is. Uh... I also think that, I don't know, drinking someone's spit doesn't really play well in the age of COVID. That, that's also <laughs> something that's really kind of odd. I, I, I think it's a pretty good movie. It's a strong movie. Uh, it's easy to overlook. It's like nihilism and flaws. Um, I don't know. It's pretty out there. It doesn't pull any punches. I, and the ending scenes, I don't think really make a whole lot of sense, but they are pretty cool. I'm giving it like a really solid three stars, like a really high three stars. I, I, I kind of loved it, and I kind of like didn't know what to do with it at the same time. So I'm giving it a three stars. All right. Well, I'll go next. First off, by the way, Todd, uh, the Orleans casino, uh, does have an arena and, uh, the, where I don't know, but the West coast, the, the WCC, uh, conference tournament and the WAC conference tournament are held there, uh, this year. 
I don't, and I think they've been held there in the past. Okay, and, it might be I, a different different building. And then. I I want to say maybe some of the summer league is held there too. I, I've seen Orleans on the floor before watching basketball games in Vegas. Anyways, um, so uh, I watched this movie last night. I haven't been able to stop thinking about this movie because, like you said, it is, it is so hard to wrap your mind around exactly what it is, and that just makes me love it any more, even more. This is a four-star movie for me. This is one of the best films of the year. Um, just because every time you think you know what's what it is and what's going to happen, it does something and turns it, and it turns it again, and it turns it again. And, uh, and like you said, Carrie Mulligan is insane in this movie. Bo Burnham I mean, I was looking at it. This kind of was like his first actual acting gig. I mean, he he played a stand-up comic big stretch there in uh, The Big Sick. Other than that, he really hasn't done much acting. And he showed that he really has some great acting chops in this. Um, and the... the Duras Helton can sing, apparently. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, love the, I love the script and... and creativity of where it was going and all the different ways it was it was taking it the direct the direction is amazing and there are some incredible shots in this movie that are um that are just gorgeous uh and on top of it it is this crazy violent funny quirky thriller it's not that violent that's the thing <laughs> you're right you're right and it, it kind of high which is something i kind of like about it too is that it, it hints at everything, but doesn't necessarily show that much. Uh, and I, I I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, I, I, I put down the 20 bucks to rent it last night, and I kind of want to watch it again tonight before, I, before my rental time is up on it, just because it's just so cool. And I, I just loved it. So that's where I'm at with it. Four stars. One of the best of the year. And and going to your point about is she going to get nominated? She is doing very well with the critics groups right now, so she's got a shot. Yeah, but I mean, I, I just I don't think she has an Oscar scene. Like she has one scene that that could maybe could be construed as that, but otherwise, I I feel like she's a lot of the times just kind of staring. But she's really intimidating, and I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see how that that plays with the the major uh, awards groups. At the same time, I think what is also working for her is that she is a past nominee, and it's been a while since she's been nominated, so I could see her get a nomination as a kind of validation of a second nomination. Like, if this was, like, going for a first nomination, you're right. But she's already a part of the club, and that could that could bode well for it. Zach, what did you think of this? I think she's absolutely um, a shoe in for best actress. Uh, I would put her even more likely than Vanessa Kirby. And I think there's a decent chance she That's could crazy. win, too. I don't know. There's I mean, zero it, chance it, she wins. Come on. No, That's I don't That's why you don't it. gamble. <laughs> hey, you, I, the only one of us here predicted Yelitsa Aparicio for best actress. So, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there. Anyway, um, I am much less enthusiastic about this movie than, than both of you. Um... I felt that this movie had some tonal issues, and it's been pointed out by other critics too, so it's not the most original thought, but there are times when this movie wants to be like sort of a schlocky exploitation. Like you look at the title font in it, it screams like kind of Bloomhouse 85-minute schlock horror movie released in June. This movie was supposed to be released in April, by the way. 
Um, and then it oscillates into something that is a lot more serious in its treatment of sexual assault and how, um, you know, campuses and institutions kind of let, you know, let the boys be boys, as one of the characters says in the movie. I never feel like it really finds its ground. Like, um, however, in, in a way, I can't critique it too much because I feel like the, the Carrie Mulligan character is someone who's emotionally traumatized. And so I could understand the, the shifts between kind of a manic high and more of a depressive state. I think she's really fascinating to watch in the movie, just her kind of body posture and the way that she she interacts, the kind of low affect in her voice is really kind of interesting. She's, I think, fantastic in the movie. Uh, the, the, the supporting cast is good, but I, I, I thought Todd was going to say this. I kind of got distracted by them a little bit um, because they're so recognizable. I almost wish that they had been more... I did more... use the exact words, distracting. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay, well... I just, I, I don't know, I, w- I wish it had been more of an, of an anonymous cast and instead of, oh, there's the Molly Shannon scene, oh, there's the Alfred Molina scene. That felt a little bit, uh, you know, ham-handed. Um, I also didn't really, I, if we're going to treat this movie as a serious Oscar contender, like, I, I don't know how much I really gel with the idea of this woman who is a, who has been victimized but as a vigilante, I can't help but think the, 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 the movies that I would compare it to are, are, are Monster and Hard Candy. And in both of those cases, first of all, the, the, I think the, um, the, 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 the filmmakers in those movies went a little bit more extreme. I think they were a little bit more fearless in their execution. Whereas in this movie, it kind of stops at a certain point. And I, I wish that the director had been a little bit more fearless in, in th- that sort of exploration. I also can't help but think of Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is another movie that was put out by Focus Features this year. Although Focus chose to push this as their Oscar contender and not Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And I think the difference is that Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is about women who are oppressed by a patriarchal culture, but it's much more about the systemic injustice of it rather than the individual. And I feel like this movie has a lot of spectacle and there's a lot of flashiness to it, which is fine for an 85-minute Bloomhouse movie, but it's not really... I I think it's a little bit too simplistic as a serious Oscar contender. Um, I think that, like, for example, the Connie Britton scene to me was totally unrealistic. I don't see any university administrator in 2021... Maybe she does the things she does in the movie, but I don't see any administrator saying the things that she says in that scene. I found it really, really unbelievable. A lot of plot contrivances, too. However... I'm going to give it three stars, a very reluctant three stars, because I think I'm being too swayed by the fact that this is an Oscar contender. If this movie had been released in June, I think I would have been more enthusiastic about it. I think there are these external things that are really influencing my opinion about it. And I do have to say, um, it was an entertaining movie to watch, and Carrie Mulligan was really good. So I'm less enthusiastic about it than either of you, but I agree with a lot of the points that both of you made. I just felt like it needed a bit more tightening, and it couldn't. It needed to decide what it was because it was too inconsistent. See, and like I don't agree with almost anything you said, but of course we give it the same rating. The same, similar <laughs> to she dies tomorrow. Like I don't know. Like it's not an Oscar contender. I I even went into that. This is not a movie that's going to contend for Oscars, other than maybe original screenplay. And yeah, I even said Hard Candy, but it's a comedy. This is a dark comedy, and it's it's not it's not the it's not. It isn't, like I said, it isn't American Psycho, it isn't 13 Reasons Why, which are movies that are really similar in a lot of ways, but, like, it doesn't show things because that, that actually keeps some mystery in it. And, I don't know, I, I also couldn't help but think, like, 
uh, in 40 year old virgin Andy Stitzer is like trying to pick up that girl he's like he's like hey you look comfortable can I buy you another cocktail and they're like too drunk but you got the right idea though like but clinically alive I feel like he easily could have been one of the guys in this movie it'd be like if she passed out it'd be like oh come on man she passed out I feel like he is like that is the level of nice guy that could actually be in that kind of situation which I feel like makes it this weird dichotomy uh, that, that the movie is playing with, and it's all, I don't know, it, <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't understand Zach's criticisms, because I, I feel like I, I actually <laughs> discussed all of them in the opposite way, but whatever. So, a couple things, I think, uh, the only reason this is getting any awards talk is the fact that it was pushed back and got a Christmas release instead of the April release, and if it had been released when it was supposed to be right. released, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know about that's that. That's why I'm giving it thumbs up because if it, I, I, I would have absolutely been more enthusiastic about it earlier in the year. This is not an Oscar movie, though. I mean, there are way too many plot contrivances. Like, come on, running into Bo Burnham at the give me a break. That is that is so convenient. Um, that the, there yeah, is a, that, there, that, that that could not have happened in any Woody Allen movie that already did. Yeah, you're right. Okay, whatever. Keep going. The, whatever. There, <laughs> Okay, just, Alice, I mean, just, so the Alison Brie okay. character, the Alison Brie character brings in an element, I won't spoil, I'm trying really hard not to spoil it, we should, I would love to talk about this movie with spoilers, but I'll try to, Alison Brie comes up with something, something is dug up, and that is a plot contrivance, okay, get more original, that is a cliche, the screenwriter goes for way too many easy outs. There is a bachelor party in this movie that is way too easy and convenient. Come on, man. Be more challenging. I don't know. The, the movie is more similar to, like, Dexter, especially Dexter's season I was thinking five. about Dexter a little bit. Like, uh, there's a lot of Dexter season five in there with, like, the whole, like, bro group of, you know, whatever. I'm not going to use, uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't want to spoil anything. I, I did like the ending, though. I, I will say, I liked the last 15 minutes. It doesn't minutes. make I thought, any sense, though. I, I, I think we're totally opposite, Todd. I, every <laughs> I single know, aspect of this movie, score, we're opposite. Which is why I wish you, you would have given yeah. it one star, because then it would have made a little bit more sense to me. And I think the no, more, you, I think the more no. you guys talk, the more I'm loving it, because you both like the movie for completely opposite reasons and are disagreeing with each other, and that's because this movie has so many layers, and you can like it for so many different reasons. Um, never really, sometimes, always. Completely different story. That should never be discussed with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so one of the things I wanted to mention with that, so you brought that up and you said um, why they're pushing Promising Young Woman instead of ne Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And the reason is because Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always actually got yeah, its theatrical, got theatrical release, release before the pandemic hit. And well, so and it has no chance at Oscar nominations because it's way too small. But at the same time, you look at critics groups, there are two people that are winning Best Actress at the Critics right now. Harry Mulligan and Sidney Flanagan. So, um, but I think we'd be talking about Carrie Mulligan the same way we're talking are you, about are Sidney you, Are Flanagan. you just ignoring Frances McDormand? Well, yeah, Frances <laughs> McDormand too. But th those three. I, okay, those three. But, um, okay. but I, I think we'd be talking about Carrie Mulligan in the same way we're talking about Sidney Flanagan if it had gotten its original release. And it's just the fact that it got pushed all the way to award season and that's I, I think i mean we're talking maybe a screenplay and actress and that's all i think it it gets but um but yeah there was something else i was gonna say oh comparisons one of the things i was thinking of comparing it to is it's kind of like a modern day count of monte cristo uh in the fact that she is like 
going it's less um like like vengeance and more like vindication of something that like something she knows that nobody else does and and she's going to to vindicate something that has gone unnoticed or something like that. that that's one of the things i thought of as i was watching it she had a lot of check marks in that book oh she did she did <laughs> But that's not. Yeah, I didn't like that, that either. That is Dexter-ish, if there ever was like. A How many? Where does she live? Like Columbus or Cincinnati? How many bars are there? Like, don't people start recognizing her at a certain point? Well, after the guy seven did. Years He's like, "Oh, you're this? that crazy bitch that Jerry brought home." <laughs> See, that was the first time that you know, like, something about what she does. Like, she obviously didn't kill the guy. I also felt like the tally marks on the screen made it almost a little Kill Bill-esque. I thought a little bit about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the sense that this is supposed to be triumphant, but uh, it ain't too triumphant for the main character. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, I that, don't know. I mean, that's a terrible call. That's the, that's the worst thing you've said all I, Obviously, it's triumphant. <laughs> that was her dream. Jeez, Zach. Uh, Did you, you watch the movie? You, you didn't think it was triumphant? <laughs> that was obviously triumphant. It was yeah. A, it was yeah. exactly what she wanted to have happen. I, yeah, it, it's you like said it isn't nest. too triumphant. No, 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 it, 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 it is, and yet it's not triumphant for her if you think about it, but maybe we'll cut I, that part out. I this is know. getting too close to spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> the important part here is this is thrice approved. All this And Todd all this and I arguments... thought agreed exactly about what, what rating we give it. That's the important thing. We're in total agreement. All these arguments, <laughs> all these disagreements, it's thrice approved. You have to go see Promising Young Woman. Um... Todd and Zach give it three stars. I give it four. I know Adam's seen it. He gave it four stars. Uh, so uh, this is this is a movie that you need to you need to check out if you have theaters around go, that are open. Go see it. Um, it is the twenty dollar rental right now on every streaming service. If you want to do that or wait until it's uh, it's a little more accessible, you can do that as well. But I think we can all agree it's something worth seeing just so you can be a part of the conversation. Because it is a conversation piece, at, at at the least. Absolutely. It's a conversation piece. Even if you don't like parts of it, it's still interesting in its flaws. Just always a good thing for a movie. Mm -hmm. Well, that got fun. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move on. I don't think on. we've argued about an agreement ever. <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was a, yeah. That was the weirdest agreement I've ever heard. Um... Okay, let's move on, and we're moving on into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And uh, last time on power rankings, I won. And so I got to pick the topic. And this topic was kind of in honor of... A couple of the films we've been talking about recently that we've watched recently that are going to be big players in the award season. Uh, films like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and a film like One Night in Miami, which we talked about, which I talked about with Adam last week. Did you guys see One Night in Miami yet? Yeah, I've not. Okay, okay. Todd, Todd do, do you agree with do you agree with me or do you agree more with Adam? Uh, I mean, I, I, I did not like it at all. I didn't think oh. it was kind of terrible, so. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, I gave it four stars, so. Zach, I know, yeah, I heard that. You're going to have to split the difference for us when you watch it. Um, anyways, so in honor of movies like that, this, uh, power ranking is, uh, best movies 
set primarily in one location. Because in One Night Miami, it's all set basically in a hotel room. You have um, you have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's all set basically in that recording studio. That's where the whole movie happens. So, movies set primarily in one location. That's what we're looking at. And you can interpret that a lot of different ways. Uh, this should be interesting. I, I think I know of a couple that will pop up on, on some of our lists. But... Uh, but let, let's see how it goes. We are going to go to uh, Zach first. Okay, so my number five comes is actually not a feature-length movie, but I don't play video games, so that um, asterisk of our power rankings doesn't apply to me. So I'm just going to take my gimmick pick with, with my number five pick. Um, it comes from a uh, compilation movie called Nine Lives from 2005, directed by Rodrigo Garcia. And it's the sequence in the movie that um, stars Robin Wright and Jason Isaacs. And um, Nine Lives is nine different stories about um, women. And all of the, they're like maybe 12, 15 minute short films, and they're all in one take. Um, and so the, the Robin Wright and Jason Isaacs uh, story takes place in a grocery store. And Robin Wright and Jason Isaacs are former lovers who have not seen each other for a very long time. Things did not end well, but it is several years later. She is now pregnant. Um, he is with another woman. She's with another man, but uh, they are always Damien and Dana because they are each other's true loves. And um, it's I think it's the best performance that Robin Wright has ever given in anything. She's extraordinary in the movie. Um, obviously, it's a short film, so you don't get to know too much about their lives, but it works perfectly as a short film. And um, the camera just kind of goes back and forth, up and down the aisles as these two characters like awkwardly say hello, and then they try to stay away from each other. Then basically he reveals that he still has feelings for her. Um, it's a beautiful short piece, and uh, it is, it's entirely in a grocery store. So yeah, it, it qualifies for this list. All right, that is definitely a gimmick pick. <laughs> yeah. Either of you seen that? No. I've seen it. I mean, I remember the... I remember the sequence, but I, I would not have ever thought to choose that. <laughs> it's pretty good. We should check it out. I have. Well, check it out again, <laughs> man. Like, it's good. It'd be like choosing the Francis McDormand part in uh, Friends with Money or something like that. <laughs> that I have not seen, so goes over my head. All right, Todd, number five. Uh, my number five uh, comes from 1954. It is Dial M for Murder. Which is, I think, my favorite of the like unheralded Hitchcock movies. Although it kind of has gotten more respect over the years, it actually was remade in 1998. Uh, a Perfect Murder, which was I've seen that movie a lot. I would have found a place for that if it didn't take place all over the city. But Dialing for Murder is about a tennis player who uh, learns that his wife's having an affair, so he plots uh, to have her killed. Uh, the entire t thing takes place in their apartment, and it's based on a play, and you can kind of tell, but it also uses, like, 3D in a way that no movie at the time did, and it has, like, it uses, like, phones and, like, space better than, like, basically any movie of this era. It's pretty intense, and it's, I, it's, it's like, borderline a top 100 movie for me, and I think only Hitchcock could have done a movie like that. It, it's, it probably was overshadowed by Rear Window, but I think it's better than that and, like, Rope and Lightboat and all those other movies that would qualify for it. Dollar for Murder is an amazing movie, and that, uh, yeah, that's my number five. I actually haven't seen Dial M for Murder. I've seen A Perfect Murder, but I haven't seen Dial M for Murder. I went in that order, too. Yeah. 
All right. Well, my number five is definitely a, a guilty pleasure movie of mine. It, it's just a, a favorite that's just so much fun. Uh, from 1985, it's Clue. Uh you get all, all your classic Clue characters, Professor Plum, Mr. Green, Miss Scarlet, uh, Mrs. White, Mrs. Peacock. They all end up in a house together, and slowly people start dying, and they have to try and solve what has happened. Um, it definitely, it, it's a definitely that, that claustrophobic feel to it, and, uh, and everyone is great in it. It is hilarious. It is, it is witty. It is funny, uh, and... I love the gimmick ending and, and how they have like the three different endings. And I love the idea that when it was originally released, depending on what theater you went to, you saw a different ending and then everyone just argued over what actually happened. I, I just love that idea. And I wish I was, you know, not, you know, being born that year. So I could have actually witnessed it when it happened, but uh, I love that movie. So clues my number five. I figured that was going to come up somewhere. Yeah, well, I have one that I'm pretty sure will definitely come up on your list, Todd. So it's not on my oh, yeah. list, but I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There, yes. So, so, like, the equivalent of that today would be, like, that Black Mirror episode that's, like, the choose-your-own-scene thing, right? Like, obviously, that can never happen again because movie theaters are dead. So now it's just maybe, like, a choose-your-own-adventure. Probably, probably. Yeah. I like how they do it too, where it ends and then you go, "This is how it could have happened," and then well, and they then do that in Wayne's World too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All, All right. I remember from Clue is, "I am your singing telegram." Boom. <laughs> We're gonna have to tell him to go. He's gonna end up dead too. <laughs> All right, uh, Zach, number four. Okay, number four comes from 1962, um, one of my favorite international films of this era, and it is a film by the great uh, Spanish surrealist director Louis Bunuel, and the film is called The Exterminating Angel, and it's a very um, satirical, existential, sort of avant-garde movie. It's a movie that Miles would have loved, okay, for being serious. It's like a Rob's grave mystery, and it's all about these uh, wealthy bourgeois people um, in, uh, I believe, Spain, and um, they're hosting a dinner party, and they invite all their fancy, bougie guests over, and then they eat their meal, and then they, they go into the living room, and then... Um, they can't leave the living room. Like, the doors are open, and, you know, the house is, is like a huge house, but they, like, for whatever reason, and it's never explained why, but they're unable to leave the living room. And this actually turns into, like, an ordeal, because they start starving, and they start um, almost, like, getting cannibalistic tendencies, and days and weeks pass. Um, one person, I believe, dies. Another couple, uh, like, uh, try to commit suicide. People, like, have sex. It turns into, the, like, this hedonistic sort of, like, like gross, um, you know, uh, uh, like like festival of madness or something. Like all these people start going insane, and yet they could just walk through the door if they want to. Obviously, uh, the movie is intended to be some sort of metaphor, but you know, Louis Bunuel is in like the same tradition as Dolly. I mean, he was a surrealist, and he never really made his political or social motivations known. And it's really just kind of a fascinating, as like a fascinating sort of anthropological study of human nature, like what these people do when they're stuck together for these really unknown strange reasons. 
reasons. So the mo the concept is so weird. I mean, there's no way that anyone could make a movie like it today. It's a reminder why you know international directors of this era were so much more cutting edge than movies are today. Um, and Bunwell was a great filmmaker. So Exterminating Angel all takes place in this one living room. It's a pretty awesome movie. Check it out. I remember you telling me that Boonwell was, like, the most overrated filmmaker in the world. I remember you telling me that, because I was reading uh, the second Sideways book, and they, met, they mentioned that Miles thinks that he's, like, the greatest director, and you said, like, you've never liked a single one of his movies. I, I, that, well, whatever, I, I take that back. I, I actually like a lot of his movies. I like the one that he did about Jesus called The Milky Way and The Phantom of Liberty I'm a, a big fan of. I, I think, I may, maybe I meant another director, but I actually, in all seriousness, really like Bunwell's films, even though I can't begin to understand them, just like, uh, you know, The Day After Yesterday. Did this by coincidence right, happen to be a, uh, a Vegas conversation? Because then it, all, that, all, that would explain a lot. All things are off. <laughs> All bets are off. Then. Maybe I meant like maybe I meant like not overrated as a film director, but like people have so many stupid theories about his films, and you know they're kind of boring and trite to listen to. But obviously, I couldn't convey that because we were in Vegas. <laughs> all right, I, I mean, was a little I mean, if sideways uh, in an is coming state. up in conversation. It probably happened in a conversation in Vegas. Todd, probably. number four. Uh, my number four is. A uh, movie I could quote basically from start to finish. That is The Breakfast Club. Because mm. it is John Hughes's masterpiece. Uh, it's about, you know, a detention that takes place in a library on a Saturday with the most, like, random cross-section of the high school you could possibly think of. And you love all the characters. All the performances are amazing. The, the conversations are just, like, riveting. And you just get, like, wrapped up in everyone's story and, like, how they can eventually relate to each other. I think it's arguably the best film of 1985. It's uh, it's an easy inclusion on the list, and I wanted at least one like original screenplay, and I feel like this is the only one that I possibly could have chosen uh, of all the ones that are like primarily in one room. So yeah, The Breakfast Club. I mean, what else is there to say? It's an amazing movie. That's a great pick. I I actually didn't think about that one, but you you're totally right. It, it works. Hey, Lostima. Now, now, uh, with with that coming up, I, I just can we just take a moment and pause and uh, and recognize the brilliance of the Bernie Sanders memes, uh, because one of my favorites is him joining the Breakfast Club. Nice. <laughs> I I didn't see that one. They're they're pretty great. I I and yeah, that's one of my favorites. It, it's it's a good one, for sure. And. I saw someone post that that uh, Bernie Sanders memes might be the most unifying uh, bipartisan uh, political thing that has happened in our country in like a decade. Yeah, I really like the one where uh, he's in Princess Mononoke. And I like the one also where he, or maybe it was Spirited Away. I can't remember. It was a, it was a uh, Miyazaki film. I li also like the one where he's with Demi Moore and Ghost and his, uh, his mittens are covering her up by the kiln when they're doing the pottery. That one was pretty good. I, I like, uh, there's one where he's in the Jedi Council in Star Wars. That one's pretty good. Um, uh, there was another... I saw one where OJ was wearing his mittens. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. There was another one where he got, uh, his head got super, or his top half was put onto a UFC wrestler and had someone in an arm bar. That one might be my favorite. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're great. They're great. And everybody loves them. Everybody loves them. See, we can all get along. Okay, moving on. Number four on my list 
is uh, from 2003, and it is Phone Booth, uh, the best thing that nice. Joel Schumacher ever did, uh, one of the best performances Colin Farrell's ever given, uh, as he is held hostage on the phone in a phone booth in the middle of New York City. Uh, as a sniper is kind of uh, keeping track of him. Uh, a very creepy sniper, voiced by Kiefer Sutherland. We never actually see him. Uh, Forrest Whitaker plays the uh, the uh, hostage negotiator that's trying to help him out. As uh, it kind of looks like he's doing all this from the phone booth. Um, just outstanding movie. Super intense. Like, I, I haven't seen this movie in a while. And just thinking about it, I want to go back and watch it. Because... It, it might be the most intense movie of, you know, staying in one place that you could possibly have. Because the whole thing, like, within five minutes of the start of the movie, he enters the phone booth and doesn't leave until the very end of the movie. Um, and uh, it, it's incredible. An incredible movie and definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it. So, yeah, phone booth number four. Yeah, yeah it was hate not people. on our Schumacher Mount Rushmore. It didn't end up on that, did it? No, because you didn't choose it. What did I choose? <laughs> I think you chose Batman Forever. Batman. Did I choose Batman Forever? Nah, I should have chose phone book. Or phone booth. Yeah. Don't you just hate people who go into phone booths and take stay there for 90 minutes and, you know, just don't leave? It's just so <laughs> annoying. Yeah, especially when people start dying outside. I mean... <laughs> the pizza man. Pizza man. That should have made one of your guys' lists. Didn't... Did, didn't Somebody mentioned that must have the, been Adam's list. I think something. it was Adam mentioned the Pizza Man in phone booth as one of his unwarranted deaths. Mm. It was mentioned. It was mentioned. Okay. We talk about phone booth uh, a lot. Yeah. I don't think we do. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about it a lot, a lot, but apparently not enough. All right. Zach, number three. Okay. Number three also comes from the 1960s. I actually, you know, just a lot of old movies sort of came to my mind when I was coming across this list. It comes from 1969. It's an Oscar winner. The film is They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Directed by a young Sidney Pollock. And this is a movie that takes place entirely at a dance hall in Southern California on the Santa Monica Pier. Um, it takes place, I think, in the 1920s, no, no, early 30s in the Depression. And this was like a real thing during the Depression um, as a way to um, lure bored people who were unemployed with the promise of riches. Um, they would have these like dance competitions where people would uh, literally dance all night and all day until their bodies literally wore out. And so They Shoot Horses, Don't They? stars Jane Fonda as um, a woman who is involved in this. She has a dancing partner. He's, he's played by Michael Sazer. Sarazine. I don't really know what else that actor has been in. Um, but the movie, um, and then Gig Young won an Oscar for the movie because he plays the uh, the MC at this kind of racetrack where, you know, there's like this disco ball uh, um, at the top and they do these like laps around it and then they do da uh, slow dances. Um, again, just such a strange and unusual concept. I don't think you could ever make, make it fly in 2021 and have audiences believe it. And yet it's a pretty riveting movie. Um, it is incredibly disturbing to watch. I think it's one of the more disturbing, like, older movies. Not because it's, like, violent or anything, but just to see the how, like, ravaged these people are um, and how, you know, obsessed they are with this prize money that they're ultimately never going to win. You know, people's bodies give out, people die, um, and we never really get a good sense of, like, how long this movie lasts. It's like Groundhog Day or Palm Springs. Like, in theory, this movie could have taken, like, three years, okay? These people, like, literally grow older as this movie goes on. They just stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Maybe it's like the 
the theater in Schenectady, New York, where uh, they stay there working for Philip Seymour Hoffman for like 30 years. Um, but it's a riveting movie. Jane Fonda agreed to do it because at the time, you know, she was married to Roger Vadim, and they both kind of saw its parallels with French existential philosophy. Um, and you could definitely read some, again, political, social uh, meaning and metaphors in it. Um, it's an awesome movie that, again, is just sort of strange and maybe has been forgotten. But uh, if people checked it out today, I bet they'd like it. There's definitely like some parallels with The Hunger Games, too. Todd, is this the movie about the horse? <laughs> yeah, there, there is a horse. Not, not that movie. Yeah, one of them. As you it's a good it up, choice. Like, not one that I yeah. thought of, though. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. So. All right, Todd, number three. Number three, I have... Uh, it is... Uh, it, it's Sleuth from 1972. Good which, call. It's uh, it essentially is just two actors in a room together, and uh, but it's really bizarre and mysterious. It's a movie that just killed me when I first saw it. It's about an old man played by Laurence Olivier, whose wife's uh, lover he invites over, and they have like this elaborate game that he sets up uh, for them to like work their way through. And it's there's a lot of twists and turns, uh, basically at every moment. It's a two and a half hour movie, but it seems really tight. It, it, I, I love the movie. It was actually remade, another movie that's remade uh, in 2007, where Kane actually is playing the Olivier role, and Jude Law is playing the younger part. I'd love to see in, like, 2042 or something, or whenever that the the anniversary would come up, uh, for him to, like, actually pass it on to another uh, actor and play the older role. It, it's a great movie. It's a fascinating movie, and I... Uh, I feel like it's kind of forgotten nowadays. It was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. He's a, obviously a, a legendary director. It's, you know, Sleuth is amazing. Like, I, I, I don't think I've, I ever would consider it for another one of our Power Rankings. Never seen it. It's a great movie, although I never saw the, the remake, but I heard the remake was terrible, which yeah, is kind it, of hard. not good. How could you, I mean, I don't know how it could be bad, but everyone really shit on it when it came out. Yeah, it, it's not. It's not. The, it doesn't. It's not one room. It's not. I don't know. I don't even think it's just only the two of them. I, from what I remember, it's pales in comparison. But I still think it, it's something worth updating. All right. It is my turn, number three on my list. Uh, this is from 1992. It's kind of stretching it a little bit, but I think enough of it takes place in one room that uh, we can go with it. And that's Reservoir Dogs. Uh, directorial writing debut of Quentin Tarantino. Um, I thought about going with Hateful Eight, which a lot of people compared with Reservoir Dogs, but Reservoir Dogs did it so much better. Um, a bank or a jewelry heist goes wrong, and the, uh, the cast of characters ends up in a warehouse together trying to figure out uh, in their rendezvous point, figure out what went wrong, um, who's the snitch, uh, what and what's going on. And, I mean, Mr. Pink, Mr. Blonde, Mr. White, Mr. Orange, uh, the whole crew. Uh, it is, uh, it, don't forget Nice Guy Eddie. Um, it, it, it's amazing. It, it's such a great movie, and it's all the, it's a great cast just an incredible cast there's some great behind the scenes stories from this too but um it, it really set up tarantino as who he was going to be as a filmmaker and uh and it was it's just cool too so uh yeah number three on my list reservoir ducks 
Yeah, Reservoir Dogs has my favorite extra of all time of any movie on the DVD, which is uh, Quentin Tarantino talking about how he got into a fist fight with Lawrence Tierney. And then um, Chris Penn talking about how Lawrence Tierney walked through a wall and then went to his party and never left. It, the guy was amazing. I think we need a Lawrence Tierney movie. But um, it's a great pick, Terry, and I was wondering when it was coming up. It, it had to be on one of our lists. Yes, it's a did. All right, Zach, number two. Okay, number two is a movie that I know Todd's a fan of. Hey, one thing we'll actually agree on this podcast, although I don't know if it's on his list, uh, but it is Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. Um, mm. It doesn't completely take place at the bank. Um, the end of the movie, it ends at a different location, but um, it, it takes place entirely on one fateful um, summer afternoon in New York City based on a real event in 1972 when Al Pacino and John Cazale went in to go rob a bank. It was meant to be a quick heist. It was supposed to take 15 minutes, and then it just lasted when the police got involved, and then it became a big spectacle. And, um, you know, like, I guess there's a theme on my list, which is that, you know, these these movies set in one location are also very much about, like, human nature. Um, this is a movie about, um, essentially, a mixture of Stockholm Syndrome, because the uh, hostages start really um, empathizing a bit with, with the Al Pacino and John Cazale characters. And then Al Pacino is so great at kind of orchestrating the crowd to, to join his side against uh, a Morietti, uh, the police chief played by, oh, what's that actor's name? Charles Durning. Um, oh my gosh, I love this movie. I, we should deep, deep dive it. I mean, I know the 45th anniversary has passed. Maybe we'll do it at the 50-year anniversary, but uh, it's I, I still think it's Pacino's best performance. It's uh, one of my favorite movies of the 70s. Um, you know, uh, uh, Sidney Lumet um, won, the, and won the Oscar for screenplay that year, adapted screenplay, um, or excuse me, original screenplay. It's an amazing movie. Uh, I think that has probably aged very well. Haven't seen it in a while, but it's it's a classic. Yeah, I've only seen that one once, and uh, I don't remember much about it because I think I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. The one time I've seen this movie was in college uh, when at the end of every term, Zach and I would host an all-night movie marathon, and Zach decided that this is what we needed to watch at 1 a.m. in the middle of our movie marathon, and 15 minutes in, he fell asleep. Hey, you know, there's never a bad time for Dog Day Afternoon, okay? I mean, it's a it's a classic. But that is the first, the only time I've seen it. And uh, I remember it was good, but I don't remember much about it. Because it was the middle of the night, and it was a while ago. Because college was a while ago now. <laughs> All right. Todd, number two. Uh, my number two is sort of an obvious one. I'm not putting number one because it doesn't take entirely a place in one room. Uh, there's one scene at a bar, one scene... At, like, a house and one scene at Williamson's car. But mm -hmm. essentially, everything else is on the training floor. That's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, again, another play adaptation. Uh, and the best one ever, along with probably the best adapted screenplay ever written. Uh, the performances are obviously unbelievable. Uh, the dialogue, how they play off each other, how it never leaves the room, and how there's, like, a million conversations going on at one time. You never really lose track of anything. It's a... Uh, it's a masterpiece of, like, minimalism, of staging, and of performance. Glengarry Glen Ross is one of the all-time great movies, and that's my number two. Good pick. Good pick. All right. Number two on my list is a movie I actually just watched recently, thanks to Zach. Um, and when I thought about this list, I had to put it on it, uh, from 1966, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? 
uh, I think it definitely qualifies, and it is a fascinating film. Uh, watching these four characters interact over an entire night, you see um, also, I mean, it, it's the conversation goes a million different ways, and uh, you see a marriage play itself out and all of its all of its struggles and troubles. You see um, connections with people who didn't really know each other before. You see rivalries start. You see so many different things, and uh, it, it's a brilliant movie. And it, it's it's just like I said, it's just a fascinating watch to hear the, this conversation for two hours. So, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf had to be on my list. So it's number two. Okay, does that really take place in one setting? I mean, they go to the restaurant. There's another scene outside where. I believe George Siegel talks with Richard Burton. I think it's. Enough. I don't know. I it's think it's, enough. It's, it's, it's it's questionable. I like the pick though. It's uh, obviously it's as a much great as, movie. I don't know. It's as much as Reservoir Dogs. I yeah. mean, or yeah. more. That's I, I, I think it qualifies. Yeah, primarily in one setting. <laughs> All right, Zach, number one. All right, well, Todd's going to know my number one. Maybe Terry does, oh, too, I do but too. it's a movie... Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, that's obvious. Well, I might as well get to it, which is a movie that, uh, whenever the world is giving me a crisis, uh, you know, like like COVID these last uh, 12 months or 10 months, um, you know, I, I, I occasionally return to this movie. I did earlier this summer. It is Louis Mal's My Dinner with Andre from 1981, starring Andre Gregory and um, the voice of the dinosaur from Toy Story, Mr. Wallace Rex. Shawn, a.k.a. Mr. Mr. Wendell Hall from Clueless. Um, you know, it, it is um, one of the great screenplays ever. Whenever I watch it, I kind of wonder, like, how much do they really, did they really follow the screenplay or did they, did they deviate from it? I actually own a copy of the script because, you know, I'm the world's biggest fan of this movie. And uh, it's basically word for word what it is in the script. So it's even all the more amazing to hear, uh, especially those long passages that uh, Andre has word for word from the script. It's amazing. There's an episode of uh, The Simpsons out there where, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the character, uh, but one of Bart's friends or enemies plays a video game called my dinner with Andre and on one of the buttons it says tell me more tell me more I always thought that was amusing um, yeah the movie gets lampooned and parodied and uh, you know I, I'm sure it could be updated to be a, a little bit more I don't know contemporary uh, two, two white guys talk two privileged white guys talking for two hours does not always sound like everyone's cup of tea understandably but um, it's an intellectually robust movie that's riveting and again some of the descriptions particularly that Andre has in the movie are just they're more visual than you could ever have in any you know, um, conventional movies. So um, great storytelling and just, again, a reaffirmation about uh, the, you know, the, the wonder uh, of the world. And it's, it's a really uplifting movie that has a special place in my heart and always will. So other people can, can shit on it, but I will always love it. Predictable number one. However, yep. I still have never seen it. Oh, Terry. Missing out. All right. But you have seen Real Steel. But I have seen real stuff. That's true. This is true. Todd, number one. My number one is... Uh, it was the easiest conclusion for me because it takes some place entirely in one hotel room. Yep, filled it on does. A camcorder. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. It is tape <laughs> yep. by uh, Rick, Richard Linklater. Uh, it's about a drug dealer played by Ethan Hawke who has a meeting with his high school buddy uh, played by Robert Sean Leonard, uh, who eventually had like a some sort of sexual encounter with Uma Thurman's character. 
and they have this like painful conversation about old memories uh, that are buried in their past. And uh, as the story unfolds, it just gets it gets pretty tense. Uh, and all the actors are amazing, all three of them. Uh, I think it's Ethan Hawke's best performance that he will ever give. It's kind of a weird movie, it's a heartbreaking movie, and uh, it has basically no budget, but it's one of the more memorable experiences I had watching a movie in like the early 2000s, because I didn't watch movies like this at the time, and uh, I don't think I've seen it all the way through since, but uh, it left quite an impact. I, I love tape, and why not have another Richard Link later at number one of something? So, there you go. Yeah, I, I had both of your number ones picked pretty, pretty solidly there. It was it was pretty obvious. That's fine. That is fine. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Well, my number one is going to be the one overlap on any list, and that's Glenn Gary oh. Glenn Ross. There um, we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's as I was thinking about it, it. It had. It's the only thing that could be number one. Always be closing. Second place gets a set of steak knives. I mean, there's there's so many great great moments that all take place in that room. Coffee is for closers. Gestapo tactics. Go to lunch, George. Um, uh, it, it's just... Uh, I'm, I'm going to Wisconsin. Uh, it, it's such a great script. It's and some powerhouse performances by an all-star cast. Uh, it, it had to be number one. It had to be. So They just like talking to salesmen. I, I, yeah, Terry and I bonded in college over the video. I, I don't know if it's still on YouTube about the swear count in uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. <laughs> we both predicted who would be number one, and I think I said Alan Arkin. Terry said Ed Harris, and of course Terry was right. Of course, I, I of course. mean that—that's—it's every other word that comes out of his mouth <laughs> in that movie. Yeah, but he's only in like maybe a third of it. It's true. I—I I probably would have guessed either though Ed Harris or Jack Lemmon. No, because Jack Lemmon's trying to sweet talk people too much, so it it doesn't it doesn't come out that often. But he has like a good thirty minutes where he's just giving it to Williamson. That's that's true. That's true. Uh, well, so so is uh, so does Ricky Roma. So that's true. Yeah. Terry, right. did you see the SNL sketch with uh, the the Santa theme, Glengarry Glen Always Ross be cobbling. With... Always yep. be cobbling. Yeah, that's pretty I figured great. He had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's come up on our podcast like three years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, almost as many times as phone booth. The, the Glen Gary line of power tools. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. So Todd, you got you have to give the uh, the the quote you uh, you sent me today, or what? When did you send it to me? Of. Um, of oh, uh, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. That reference, Glen Gary, and who who said it? Well, it was Rich Eisen. Yeah. He said, I can't believe that Urban Meyer gave the Glengarry leads to the guy who didn't hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. Because obviously <laughs> the Jaguars hired Daryl Bevel, the former Seahawks office coordinator. It was perfect. It was, it was perfect. And of course, that only comes up when you have, like, a group of, like, four of your buddies that are with you on your radio show. <laughs> <laughs> that are all encouraging you to say weird shit like that. Exactly. Alright, well, Zach, do you have any honorable mentions? I do. I, I had uh, Get the Trial of Vivian Opsalom, which takes place entirely in a courtroom. Mother, not 
Which mother? But you know the the Jennifer Lawrence mother. All of them. All of them. Mother. Yeah, sure. Um, Russian Ark, Locke, Una. I don't know. Did, did Una t- take place entirely in one? I feel like it not did, Todd. Really. Didn't it? Not really. It's not okay, all well. in in that in that workplace. I don't think. No. I feel like so. Todd recommended Una to me, and that was a really good recommendation. I've thought about that movie ever since he recommended it. Um, Diary of Anne Frank, Paranormal Activity, Last Night at the Alamo, Compliance. Dogville, the restaurant, the Chinese restaurant episode of Seinfeld, Inception, because technically the whole thing takes place on an airplane, right? And uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, which took place entirely on a golf course. <clears throat> I, I like the Inception call that it all takes place on an airplane. I also like the Seinfeld shout out. That that's a that's a great call. That is Inception that's one of the best be, episodes. Um, spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> but you know. All right, Todd. What are your honorable mentions? Uh, I have All is Lost, uh, even though it takes place over a pretty wide area, but it's all on one boat. Uh, I also <laughs> had My Dinner with Andre and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. Wait Until Dark also takes place in one room. Fences was one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Carnage, I've mentioned on this podcast before. Yeah. Clerks basically takes place all at the <laughs> at the quick stop. And 1208 East of Bucharest, which, uh. I mean... I, I don't know. I, I I mean, again, it's an honorable mention on one of our lists. I think it was on like I don't like a with a, I think it was with a city in the title or something. But I mean, when I have to, when I can mention, I will because that was a great movie. I I watched that one. Honestly, I don't remember much about it, but I I just remember it was it had a cool premise to it, and uh, and I probably should watch it again. Yeah, there was another Romanian movie called Police Adjective that took place in one room too. So oh, I would yeah. add that to my list. I forgot about that movie. Those Romanians know how to use their their one sets. All right. Well, uh, my honorable mentions. Uh, I'm going to start with the uh, the classic that is one of the first ones that comes up that nobody said yet, and that's Twelve Angry Men. Um, then I have 127 Hours is another great one. Um, uh, 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 one that I thought of as I was thinking about it is Moon with Sam Rockwell. Uh, that one is a great movie that I hadn't thought about in a long time. See, I was I was also thinking of Castaway, but I don't know that that really qualifies. No. but I, I think Moon works a little better because I mean he's he's stuck inside that that station the entire time. I mean he goes outside a little bit, but uh, speaking of Tom Hanks, the terminal I, I had on the list. The whole thing takes place inside of one airport terminal. Uh, United ninety three was uh, on my honorable mention, and then I also had Wait Until Dark. Uh, because nice. yeah, that movie is awesome. So I, I was actually, yep, yeah, I was actually surprised by how few space films I could think of. The only one that I could really think of was High Life, which I liked but didn't love. I'm surprised there aren't more space movies confined to just a single spaceship. I don't know, maybe Alien. Did that was that all on one ship? I I, I would think so. I I thought you could. I was thinking you could almost go with Gravity. Almost, yeah. But um, it, it doesn't really work. I mean, their, their one location is space because they're outside of spaceships the entire time. <laughs> All right. Well, it is now time for us to play our game uh, as we try and guess Adam Daly's list uh, and see what he came up with for this. So, Zach, what is your prediction for Adam's top five? I went with number five, Rear Window, number four, Buried, number three, Ex Machina, number two, Glengarry Glen Ross, and number one, Twelve Angry Men. 
All right, Todd. I have number five, The Thing. Number four, Clerks. Number three, Rear Window. Number two, Knives Out. And number one, 12 Angry Men. All right, I've got number five, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, number four, Rear Window. Number three, Glengarry Glen Ross. Number two, The Green Mile. And number one, I mean, it doesn't really qualify, but I think he might think it does, the Before Trilogy. Like all three of them. He's not going to pick one. He's just going to say all of them. So that that's that's what I've got. <laughs> no, no, uh, no Batman under the hood or something. No, no, no. Okay. All right. Uh, honorable mentions. He has Clue, uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, Alien, uh, Wreck, Quarantine, and Saw. That's his. Uh, that's his uh, honorable mention. Number five is The Thing. Yes, I got that in the right spot even. A film that is better and better with each viewing for me. You truly feel the cold and isolation that these guys are feeling in this Arctic uh, research facility. The tension and paranoia builds as the characters start to realize they are being taken out one by one. Alright, number four, Rear Window. I touched on this briefly when we talked about... Jimmy Stewart move, uh, performances, but watching this film was a delight. One of those Hitchcock movies I could watch over and over again. James Stewart uh, makes spying on your neighbors so much fun. Number three, Buried. Talk about a movie that I'll praise, but will have a hard time wa- wanting to rewatch. Uh, from the frustratingly real things that would totally happen to that shocking, unhappy ending, claustrophobic is an understatement. Number two, Lock. Tom Hardy takes on a compelling car ride. The film is paced and told so brilliantly by Stephen Knight. It leaves you wanting to see how this car ride ends. So many different phone conversations and interactions in Ivan Locke's world leaves you exhausted when credits hit. And number one, 12 Angry Men. Every time I watch this film, the more and more I love it, from the different characters to the sharp dialogue, even this room they are in feels like a character in this film. Uh, And then he says uh, something that would have been his number one is The Shining, but he used it as an example when he was talking to me, and he didn't want to give me an advantage, so he left it off his list. Even though I already had my list set when he did it, but oh well. The Shining's another good one. I think Zach and I both got three. Yeah, but I got his number one. I did too. Yeah, you both said, said Twelve Angry Men is number one. I had I had Twelve Angry Men number one. I had uh, Rear Window three and The Thing five. I had Rear Window five and Buried four. I mentioned Locke in my honorable mentions though. Mm. But I, I mean, I had two right on the right. And spot. I mentioned I was talking about Alien before you read it. True. Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking Todd might have it simply because he had two in predicted in the right spot. Like I think that might need to be the tiebreaker. Lame. I, I mean, can't believe you didn't say knives out. That was totally an Adam pick. Knives out does. I mean, it doesn't really take place in one. I, I Almost know. the whole thing is in in that one house. I I guess so. It doesn't feel like it though. I mean, these types of movies like. Saying a one-setting movie, it has a certain feel to it. Like it has that claustrophobic feel to it. Knives, Knives Out doesn't Knives have that. Out 
Yeah, Knives Out also, like, isn't there a scene in a laundromat? Like, I feel like that movie goes way outside that house. Mm-hmm. There's a car chase. Yeah, there's a car chase in it, yeah. Yeah, so Locke is a car chase. Well, yeah, but, I, I, yeah. I don't know, the, I, I thought we, the before movies were going to be mentioned. I thought we did a good job of not um, relegating this list to um, trying to define what one location meant. I think we deserve a pat on the back because I thought that's what li- this was going to devolve into. <laughs> well, I, I tried to make it all in one room. That's why I didn't have Glengarry number one because it's not. <laughs> There's like two scenes outside. That's true. That's true. I, I think I probably stretched it the most and I was the one that came up with the topic. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'll give Todd the win on that one, so he'll be uh, he gets a point. He'll be picking our next uh, our next power ranking. But valiant effort by Zach. Like I think Zach deserves a quarter point for that, just for how 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 I'm close. I'm not giving he came. quarter points. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what's the score, Todd? It is now. I have twenty five and a half. Zach has eighteen, and Terry has sixteen. Okay. All right. Says the one with a half a point that we're not going to give out partial points anymore. You're always, that's always your idea. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's, uh, let's hop into, uh, our trivia segment. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And every time with trivia, the winner gets to assign movies for the other two to watch. Zach won last time, so he'll be hosting, and he assigns stuff for us to watch. And I'll go first. And uh, it's something that came up on the last podcast uh, that we did with this, because last time I assigned Zach Tombstone to watch, and he hated it. And one of the comments he made was, I liked it better when it was My Darling Clementine, which I hadn't seen yet. So I had to watch, from 1946, My Darling Clementine, directed by John Ford, starring Henry Fonda. And uh, I I will say, this was definitely a better movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's a a really, really great movie. Henry Fonda does does an incredible job. Uh, You had Linda Darnell in it, uh, Victor Mature. Uh, who actually I had seen, I've seen him in Samson and Delilah. He played Samson. Uh, I just randomly watched that one at one point. Um, but he he's definitely gives a very different vibe to Doc Holliday than the, like, corpse that is Val Kilmer in Tombstone. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's definitely a better movie than Tombstone. I will say Tombstone is still, I still like more because it's, uh, it, it's, it's something about those those '90s movies I, I have a soft spot for, and I, I I like love that era of of filmmaking. So of Val Kilmer, and and well, and Val Kilmer, yeah. But so, uh, uh, my darling Clementine, I have it ranked higher. I think I only gave Tombstone three. I'm giving this three and a half. But if I had to choose one to watch, I would choose Tombstone to watch. So. Yeah, my darling Clementine's probably my my favorite uh, western. Um, along with ride the high country um to to me it's like it it's not so it it's it's not it's so not what tombstone is like it's it's so it's so much more subdued it's so much more about the the relationship between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday 
performances I think are so much more nuanced. It doesn't do that whole bullshit thing with classical westerns of like the, the trumpet music and then the big showdown. Um, it's just, and it's a beautifully photographed movie. It's one of the best looking black and white movies from this era. It's probably my favorite John Ford movie too. Um, it's just, it, it's an awesome movie. And so for me watching Tombstone, like the movie from 1946 feels a lot more progressive and daring and relevant than the movie from 1993. I will say Henry Fonda gave 10 times the performances wider than uh, Kurt Russell did. I think Kurt Russell's the worst part yeah. about Tombstone because he just doesn't fit. <laughs> So if you could take Henry Fonda and put him in in a movie about this with Val Kilmer and Sam Elliott and Bill Paxton as the uh, as the rest of the crew, I think that would have been uh, that would have been a, a, a like a perfect telling of the story. <laughs> All right, well that's my darling Clementine. Uh, and it was cool. I rented it from the library, or not rented. I borrowed it from the library, and it was the Criterion version. So that was that was pretty cool too. All right, Todd, what did you have to watch? Uh, I had to watch the movie from France called France by Francois Ozone. That, uh, that joke never gets old. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, uh, so it took place after World War One, and this uh, girl, Anna, played by Paula Beer, is grieving the loss of her husband, uh, France, in the war. So, And she comes across this French guy named Adrian, and... Um, uh, she also knew her husband, or he also knew her husband, and uh, they develop a connection. And he, uh, she continues to invite him over to her house, and they essentially make him sort of an extension of the family. They try, they pretty much talk to him about like what he was at the end of his life, and um, and like who he was and all that. Um, the movie is told mostly in black and white, which I feel like is a little strange because like there are random sections. Like, uh, the flashbacks that are told in color, and it seems kind of disorienting at first, and, uh, I'm not really sure why they chose that, but, uh, it, it kind of stops after a while. Uh, I could see why this would be a great movie in the, in the theater, and I could see why Zach loved it. Like, uh, Ozone is, like, great at making romantic scenes out of the most bleak of situations, and as you develop more into the story, you can see why, uh, um, you can see why it's great and why you can get swept up in the mood and the sadness of it. It's got a really good message about like forgiveness and like the power of denial. Um, I like the movie a lot. I think Paula Beer is amazing. I think she should have been nominated for best actress that year. I give it a three and a half stars. Yeah, it, it's a great movie. It's been, I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. I named it, I think, my number four of 2017. Um, it's a movie that grew on me. When I first saw it, I was like, okay, it's a good movie. But the more I thought about it, the more I really liked the, the layers and the relationships in that movie. And what I especially liked was, um, you know, like a lot of great historical movies do, it actually takes you back in time to, you know, 1918 or whenever it, it takes place. Like, you can really feel the emotions of the characters and the loss. And I think it's now, you know, it's over 100 years ago. It's very abstract to think about what people went through at that time. But maybe it's Paula Beer's performance, maybe the way it's filmed. But um, I just remember really being caught up in uh, the emotion of what, what that character is going through and really being moved um, by, by what she does in the movie. Yeah, right. I, I don't know. I mean, do, do you remember, like, uh, the 
like how it goes from black and white to color yeah like the opposite of how movies do yeah that. i've never seen that in another movie before I, I it was surprising i remember um when i saw it and i thought it was really cool i thought it was it was daring it's kind of weird though right i mean yeah because <laughs> yeah like, it's definitely anything, like an american history x it's the opposite every every other movie is the opposite with like the flashbacks always in black and white so i don't know it was like it was kind of yeah it was jarring when i first when i when it, when it first started doing that I feel like Terry, as a real big fan of 1917, should see Franz. I think Franz maybe subconsciously influenced my lukewarm review of 1917 because for me, if I'm watching a war movie, and this is where Franz, Franz originally came up, I put it as a war movie. Like, this to me is about the consequential effects of war way more than like a traditional military battlefield movie. And there's no scenes really on the battlefield in this movie, but for me, it's so much more powerful because it's a more intimate look at complex and really richly developed characters interesting all right well there's that and now it's trivia time so zach you're hosting what are we doing okay so we're gonna do um maybe three categories i don't know we'll see how long the first two take but uh the last few weeks we've been reviewing um well we reviewed first pieces of a woman and now we reviewed promising young woman so uh we're gonna have a woman themed um trivia with some different categories so the first category yeah i know i todd just rolled his eyes i agree I, it's the only <laughs> thing i could think of um okay so the the, the first category uh and we're, we'll go back and forth on this is um, best picture nominees that were directed by women. There are 14 of them all time. And, uh, we're going to go back and forth and see who can, and it's not necessarily that they won best picture, uh, cause obviously only one of them did, but, uh, movies that were nominated for best picture that were directed by women. And we're going to start this list with Todd. Selma. Selma is correct. And actually, if if you can um, name the director, I I won't dock you points if you can't name it. But name Ava it, DuVernay. Yeah. Well, I'll take Hurt Locker, which was Catherine Bigelow. Correct. Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow. Correct. Uh, Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola. Correct. Frozen River, Courtney Hunt. Wow. Frozen River was not nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it was. No, was it? No, wait, no, it wasn't. It was not. I know, I know. I'm saying the wrong movie then. I'm saying Yes, uh, you you are. Oh, I'm so saying, okay. you're out. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> Is that Vegas hangover, man? It's messing with your brain. Yeah, so I I mean whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Terry. Terry doesn't have any you, 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 you can you can I've run got, this, all man. Alright, so uh Little Women, uh Correct. Greta Gerwig and Lady Bird, uh Greta Gerwig. Correct. Um then, oh, let's see here. Um, that was the end of what I had written down. I think Todd meant to say Winter's Bone. Correct. Um, and he doesn't know who the director is. I don't know who the director is. Is it, because... is it Courtney Hunt? No. Probably not. No. no. Uh, but I don't need the, the director. Granick. Yeah, you do need the director. No, he said it was just I for said extra. It, optional. Yeah. Yeah, it was optional. So then why are we mentioning it at all? If, if you can. I don't know, because it's it was worth a... mentioning. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, whatever. Stop giving me crap, Todd. What a terrible um... idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's see here. Uh, That might be it for me. I think that's all I got. Okay, so the others, you, you, you guys didn't do bad. Um, how about the piano? Jane Campion. Oh, yeah. Um, we also have an education, which also starred uh, Carrie Mulligan. Mona um, Scherfig. 
Yep. Uh, the first one, which is a, a really tough one to get, I don't know if either of you would get this, is uh, Children of a Lesser God, which was directed by someone named Rhonda Haynes. I don't know if I've ever heard of anything else she did. I just remember um, one. Isn't Kids Are All Right directed by... Kids Are All Right. Yep. Lisa Sholodenko. Little Miss Sunshine, which was co-directed by Valerie Ferris. Awakenings and The Prince of Tides. So, oh, Awakenings Terry... was Penny Marshall, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Terry ran up the score on this one. This is this is going to get interesting. So, so Terry has five points. Todd has two, and Terry will start um, this next category, which is um, the top twenty-five highest-grossing movies directed by women. Um, so this was sort of a tough list to put together, and you know we'll, we'll see how well I can mark it. But I included both the both the um, like regular domestic gross and the gross adjusted for for impact, so or for adjusted for time and inflation. So um, I'll I'll accept whatever. I mean, we'll just kind of you know go go with whatever. But uh, top twenty five highest grossing movies directed by a woman. Some of these were co directed. I I will say. Um, and, uh, we're going to start with you, Terry. Co-directed. Okay. Well, then that means like number one's going to be Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel is correct. That is number two. Uh, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is number three. And, and you can, and you could say the director in this one too. I like how it bothers Todd that they, <laughs> it doesn't have point value, but you could say well, the director. Well, if Captain you want. Marvel was Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck. Correct. And and Wonder Howdy Woman was, yeah. yes. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, maybe I I do not see Little Miss Sunshine in, on this list, Terry. Gosh, that's not good. So so all right, Todd. The the the, the category is yours. I'm gonna go with Brave, directed by Brenda Chapman. That is number seven. Um, a league of their own a league of their own yeah yes it is on the adjusted for inflation list so i will count that it is number 18 big big is also on the adjusted for inflation list Gosh. and it is number 15 i rode the wrong horse <laughs> uh This is bad. Uh, what's that? What's that? What's that flop that Ava DuVernay had with Oprah? The hell is that movie called? I know what you're talking about. Do you want me to tell you if it's on the list? (laughs) Yeah, it's not on the list, and you're thinking of a wrinkle in time. A wrinkle in time. There you go. But I'll I'll give you a a mulligan. Can can you think of one more? Oh, you know, you can't give him a mulligan. That's what he was gonna say. But he didn't know the title. Yeah, and then you told him it was wrong, so he's moving on instead of trying yeah, to figure but I, out the I, title. I feel a little bad about Winner's Bone. Like, that's that's an understandable mistake, you know. Lame. <laughs> hey, I should have won that I should have won that Adam list, okay? I I, I <laughs> no, said should. alien. <laughs> Todd, do you have any more? See, he's no, not even gonna come up not, with anything. I don't have anything on the office. Exactly, it, 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 it's it was all for naught. So, so, so how number... many times does Nora Ephron pop up on the list? Oh, she's here a few times. Yeah. Uh, that, oh. that's that's. Uh, you've got Mail is number twenty-five. Sleepless in Seattle is number twenty-two. 
Um, I think that might be it. Actually, on the adjusted for inflation list, it moves up to number 10. But a couple other ones, that notable ones that you missed. Um, the Frozen movies were both co-directed by Jennifer Lee. Twilight. Twilight, oh, Twilight directed by Catherine Hardwick. Uh, Catherine Hardwick. Oh, uh, Pitch Perfect 2 directed by Todd's um, uh, uh. Uh, lady friend, uh, Elizabeth Banks. And um, What Women Want, Nancy Myers, And uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, Sam Taylor Johnson, to name a few. Okay, so uh, that brings our score to, uh, let's see, it is seven to six, and Terry has a lead. Let's go to this last category real fast, and we'll kind of make this the tiebreaker. Um, this is a list of all of the women or movies um, that won a screenplay Oscar that were written by women. And again, I will accept the name of the movie. You don't have to name the woman who wrote it. Um, but, you know, it's kind of cool if you can. There are 20 movies in, to in total that have won an Oscar for adapted or original screenplay that were written by women. We have a pretty close game here with Terry holding on to a 7-6 to six lead, um, but Todd starts. They, these are winning, right? Yes, these won either adapted or original screenplay, and they were written by women. Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation is correct. Juno. Juno is correct. Uh, the piano. The piano is correct. And now, now it gets interesting. I, I thought you would get those three. Okay. Um. I. I don't know. Okay, Todd, do you have any more to break the tie? Wait, oh, wait, can, no. Wait, can I throw one? Uh, hold on, hold on. Can I, uh, Little Miss Sunshine? No, that was, that was Michael Arndt. Little Miss Sunshine did, did not win. So, Todd, do you have any more to break the tie? I'm thinking... Uh... <laughs> it's, it's not Winner's Bone or... Uh, 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 Frozen yeah. River, if that helps. Stop yeah, giving him help. That. I know that. I'm gonna say Kramer versus Kramer. No, um, I have no idea who that's written by. Yeah, and neither do you. That probably. was by it's Alvin Sargent, and um, <laughs> although uh, Meryl Streep did write her courtroom scene, um, but the some other notable ones that you missed: Brokeback Mountain, written oh. by Diana Osana based on a novella by Larry McMurtry. How about Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility? Um, Ruth Powler Jabvala wrote a couple of those Merchant Ivory movies. Um, Thelma and Louise, written by Callie Corey. So, you know, we're tied, which means we're going to a tiebreaker, a really, really indulgent tiebreaker, which is, um, he, okay, here's the question. Promising Young Woman ranks what number on my uh, 2021, or 20 list, excuse me. Whoever's closer wins. Very scientific. Who goes first? Uh, Terry. I'm going to say it is number 32. Okay. 44. It is number 42. Oh, gosh. Come on. <laughs> Todd wins. <laughs> wow. It's almost fair. I, th I think the Frozen River thing was a little unfair. <laughs> it wasn't unfair. You said the wrong movie. He got it wrong. Yeah, but those movies I are the same the movie. movie. I mean, it's they're very close. 
Did you see last week on Jeopardy? The producer of Winter's Bone was on Jeopardy. Like, like it's like he's a movie producer, and then his little in between thing was uh, he talked about how he bought Winter's Bone at Sundance, and 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 put it out. Anyways, that's a really random aside. Ken Jennings doing a wonderful <laughs> job, by the way. If you haven't watched any of it, okay. I actually haven't. He's doing really, really well. And, like, it's pretty seamless. Anyways. Whatever. All right. Quote of the daytime. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Let's wrap this up. Todd, you won. Go ahead. All right. My quote comes from the Rotten Tomatoes blurb that comes uh, from The Runner, the Nicolas Cage movie that I watched. And it says, uh, it, this is like the totality of all their reviews that they, that, they come that they come up with for their website. It says, in spite of a promising premise and a roundly talented cast, The Runner is a disappointing outing to be viewed only by the staunchest of Nicolas Cage completists. <laughs> and that is me, baby. Let's go. <laughs> wow. Wow. That That is perfect right there. That is a perfect quote. All right, Zach, you're next. So my line, my quote comes from Promising Young Woman, and it's a quote by Schmidt. I don't know that actor's real name. He's just Schmidt. Max <laughs> Greenfield. And I don't know if this is the exact line, because I, it's not, I don't, I didn't see the line anywhere, but it goes something like, there's a dead stripper at your bachelor party? What is this, the 90s? Which was the best line in the movie? <laughs> what? Uh, Where's our dead stripper? <laughs> that, that scene was awesome. Do you agree with Do you agree with that, Todd? That that was a great line? Uh, that was a great line, yeah. And that was a great scene. And that was Schmidt it was. just like going off. And you like, said you didn't like the he, ending. I like the ending. It's no, a good the ending. ultimate ending. Like, he, that's not the ending. But yeah. And, and no matter what, he's always Schmidt. No matter, yeah. what, no matter what. Of course, yeah. All right, well, my line comes from my number one on my power ranking, Glengarry Glen Ross, the ever-quotable Glengarry Glen Ross. And I found a quote that I'd kind of forgotten about. I was looking through just Glengarry quotes, and I found this one, and I just had to use it. And it comes from uh, Ricky Roma, played by Al Pacino. And he says, oh... You ever take a dump made you feel like you just slept for 12 hours? And that's how I feel about this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. With that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. Uh, we'll be back at you soon with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.